Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. Talking to the ex can be one of the most challenging tasks people face in the context of a separation. For the purposes of our discussion today, I include in the definition of talking any method of direct communication, being in actual contact, personal, verbal, virtual. So why is talking to the ex so difficult? Because feelings are involved. Strong feelings that very often come from and also reach into the very core of an individual's identity. For those who had no part in the decision to end the relationship, often the very idea of having an exchange of any kind, in person, in writing, in fact, in any way at all, may seem horrifying. It may feel morally objectionable or emotionally simply impossible. When people feel betrayed, for example, the last thing on their mind is communicating with the very person who they feel betrayed them. Minako Iwasaki was at one time Japan's most famous geisha. She is the one whom the author of Memoirs of a Geisha interviewed for his book. I have a great quote from her for you. It hits at the very core of the matter. And here it is. Stab the body and it heals, but injure the heart and the wound lasts a lifetime. For those who end a relationship, the situation may be no less difficult. There are sometimes feelings of guilt, remorse, and these may be persistent. Sometimes there is even disappointment and anger, particularly when the person who made the decision feels they had no choice but to do so. I have another quote for you from a prolific Austrian writer and playwright, Stefan Zweig. Here it is. No guilt is forgotten so long as the conscience still knows of it. 
I am not a psychologist and I do not pretend to be one. From my professional and personal experience alone, I feel people react to these types of emotions at the extremes by either clamming up altogether and retreating into their shell for protection, so to speak, or by lashing out at the person whom they perceive as the author of their misery and anxiety. Again, those are opposite ends of a fertile spectrum, and of course there are varieties and permutations along the way. Also, because the process of separation, the journey to a place called apart, which I described in the first episode of this podcast, because that journey is a dynamic process, a person may go through a number of stages once the relationship ends while they're on this journey. Those stages can trigger different emotional responses and can last for dissimilar periods of time, depending on the individual. So to sum up my opening point, let me say this. Talking through tears, through feelings of blame or guilt or of anger and anxiety is tough, very tough. Those who have experienced separation understand this very well. So how do you tackle talking to your ex? From my perspective, the first question you might ask yourself is whether you have to. Is such direct communication actually required? The answer to this question is more complicated if there are children involved. Parenting necessarily involves communication with the other parent. There are situations involving criminal charges, for example, or domestic violence, where communication between the parents is not advisable and, in fact, may be impossible. But setting aside cases in which contact between the parents is prohibited by criminal restrictions, for example, most parents need to communicate about their children following the separation. But let's start with a more straightforward example. Two people in a second marriage for each of them She meets someone else and decides to move on. He is very upset and very angry. They have no children between them, but do run a business together and have property, including the matrimonial home under renovations. She moves out. He simply can't wrap his head around the idea that he will have to communicate with her directly about anything. Does he have to? Actually, he does not. So that is the technical answer to the question we posed earlier for this particular fact scenario. If there are issues to be dealt with, and there will be based on the facts of the case, the business, for example, and he can't face addressing them directly with her, he always has the option of hiring a lawyer to assist him with that communication. Here is another option. A skilled mediator can work with the parties to resolve 
any issues arising out of their separation without the requirement that they actually communicate directly. I know this may sound odd to some, but it is possible. And yes, having third parties involved, actually communicating through them and not directly does mean added cost. But sometimes this is the only viable option for making progress for actually taking steps forward. The alternative might be, realistically, waiting for one party to catch up emotionally to the other. And I have talked in earlier episodes about the different points the parties may find themselves in at the point of separation and after it. So this option would involve waiting for the person who is emotionally overwhelmed to get well enough, so to speak, to communicate directly. If you are considering this option, consider the following points as well. A, that may take some time and there may be issues which have to be dealt with in a shorter time frame. And B, it might never happen. In other words, the tectonic shift resulting from the separation may be so profound that direct communication may not be an option ever again. Before I leave this couple, let's also consider the possibility they might be able to communicate in writing. Also tough if emotions are turned up to 11, but workable with commitment to some rules on both sides. Later in the show, I offer some tips. Let's move on to a case involving children. Yes, I have a hypothetical for you. Manuel and Peter, they have two kids. Manuel believes that Peter has been unfaithful and is convinced Peter and his new partner will be moving in together soon and essentially replacing Manuel in the children's lives. Peter denies this. High emotions, high conflict, in fact. Early efforts at direct communication between the fathers proved unworkable. Their texts and emails were toxic and were not just about the kids. There were accusations from Manuel, defenses from Peter, altogether toxic and destructive. As is very often the case when parents are at war, the tsunami of their conflict spills onto the kids and affects them deeply. Parents often tell me they believe their communications with the other parent are private, that the kids know nothing about their anger at each other, and that everything is fine. The reality is generally very different. The impact on the kids of their parents' toxicity towards one another is very direct, deep, and long-lasting. In theory... Manuel and Peter would pack away their anger at each other, set it aside at least, for the sake of the children. That would be the right thing to do, in theory. Kids come first. This is something we've all heard before, and it's what I preach every chance I have. But 
Manuel and Peter are human and their separation is recent. The emotional fallout still very raw. And the last time I checked, I could not find a switch anywhere to turn off my own emotions. And I do not think you have one either. So how do you navigate this if you are either Manuel or Peter? Number one, give yourself a break. Remember that you are facing a profound change in your life and that you need time to adjust to the situation. No one expects you to snap out of it, so to speak, based on any timetable. There will hopefully be some linear progress, small steps forward to an adjustment to the change, but there may not be, at least not at a pace which you might expect. You might take three steps forward and two steps back. That happens a lot. Separation is a very individual experience. There is no standardized model, no formula for how people handle the end of a relationship. Second, get support if you feel you need it. If you're not sure, listen to people you trust who may have a clear picture of your needs as you grieve. There are people out there, professionals, who can help you manage your emotions. This in turn might help you communicate more effectively. I'm talking about therapists and counselors, coaches, even your family physician. The leadership and community of your temple, church, synagogue may also offer support. But you can also have professionals help with the actual communication. Manuel and Peter can tackle parenting their kids in the early stages after their separation through their respective lawyers. In practical terms, they would be talking to one another through lawyers, through the exchange of letters, telephone calls, and so on. Again, sometimes that is necessary to turn down the temperature, to reduce the kids' exposure to their parents' conflict. But let's be realistic. Lawyers cannot and should not be involved forever. If the level of Peter and Manuel's conflict doesn't subside, some plans will have to be made for their future communication about their children. And that might involve, for example, a parenting coordinator to assist with future disputes or a dispute resolution mechanism in their separation agreement or parenting plan, which provides for an initial effort at resolving the dispute through mediation and then through arbitration. But let's consider a sunnier scenario, one in which Manuel and Peter are making progress and the initial angst of the separation is ebbing away. They have actually decided to get some parenting communication coaching with a psychologist because they realize they will have to coexist as parents to their children for the rest of their lives and celebrate their milestones well into the future. 
In the meantime, Peter and Manuel are trying to communicate directly by email. Despite their best intentions, and I'm going to give them both the benefit of a doubt they deserve because they're both trying hard. From time to time, their emails devolve into the old accusations and denials. So what rules of engagement might they employ to help them focus on the actual reason for their emails to one another, and that is their kids? Here, I always talk about Bill Eddy, who is the author of many books and articles on communication, which include Biff, Quick Responses to High-Conflict People, Their Personal Attacks, Hostile Email, and Social Media Meltdowns. BIF actually stands for Brief, Informative, Friendly, and Firm. And that is the acronym you might consider writing out on a sticky and pasting on your screen as you are preparing to email the other parent. In the show notes, I'm going to include a link to Bill Eddy's website where you will find a treasure trove of other very useful information. He's very insightful, thoughtful, obviously a talented professional. So make your communications brief. If you are telling the other parent Johnny has a runny nose and might be getting a cold, say so. Make the email informative. If you believe that in addition to telling the other parent about the runny nose, it also makes sense to tell them you already took Johnny's temperature that morning and he didn't have a fever, do it. There is never any harm in saying hello, ending with thank you, and adopting a friendly tone generally. You will be setting a standard and expecting the same from the other parent. As for firm, if you are, for example, responding to an email which you believe veered into subjects which are unnecessary and not productive, stick to the topic at hand, namely the children, and simply state that you will not be addressing the other subjects raise. I realize that it may be difficult for parents to imagine having an almost business-like exchange with the other parent, but that is essentially what you are aiming for. I have suggested to some of my clients that they think of the other parent as another caregiver to the children rather than a person necessarily connected to them by family bonds. That helps in implementing the BIF principle. I'm approaching the end of this episode, but before I sign off, I wanted to touch on the concept of metacognition. Some have described this as self-awareness, but I see this as a more active process than that. It's thinking about thinking. It's becoming aware of one's awareness. If you Google metacognition, you will find the following definition from psychology. Awareness and understanding of one's own thought processes. Here, 
Meta means beyond or on top of. So this is a higher level of cognition, one might say. One T in this meta, contrasted with the two T meta in meta mediation, the brand name of my mediation practice. Meta with two T's means loving kindness. When you are sitting in front of the screen, about to send an email or text to the other parent, consider for a moment your own thought process. In fact, what your body is doing at that very moment as you prepare to type. Be aware of it. Take it into account before the next action. Are you tensing up? Is your breath quickening? Are your cheeks warm? Use your higher order thinking skills. Become aware of your default approaches. Recognize that you have a task at hand, which is communicating with the other parent, and plan for it. Self-assess. Self-correct if necessary. Do this before you press send. There is such a thing as an amicable separation, but it's a relatively rare phenomenon. More often than not, Changes which come at the end of a relationship come with emotional responses on both sides. Having a sane split includes figuring out the most effective way to communicate in both the short and long run and actually participating in that communication, direct or indirect, so that the issues can be addressed. Metacognition and mindfulness can help you exit the emotional mind from time to time and make progress as you are planning your future. More about those concepts in future episodes. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically signing off for now